0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to Staffer, the show about people who work in government or politics at any level and what they take from the experience. I'm your host, Jim Papa, a partner at Global Strategy Group and a former staffer myself. My guest this week is Stephanie Shriak, president of EMILY's List. Emily's List is, without a doubt, the country's leading, most successful organization dedicated to electing pro-choice Democratic women. It has helped elect literally thousands of women to office around the country, up and down the ballot. Just before we recorded this episode, Stephanie announced that after 11 years at the helm of Emily's List, she's going to be moving on in the spring of 2021. We talk about that, and we also talk about a new book that Stephanie has written with Christina Reynolds, who is Vice President of Communications at EMILY's List. The book is called Run to Win, Lessons in Leadership for Women Changing the World. The book is available for pre-order now. It comes out on January 12th. Before we dive into the interview, I want to give you a little bit about Stephanie's background. Before she became president of EMILY's List in 2010, she was already one of the most respected and accomplished women in politics. She was finance director for Howard Dean's groundbreaking presidential campaign, which set the standard for what was then sort of the new field of online fundraising. And she set new records along the way. She managed the hard-fought election of Senator Al Franken and an eight-month recount that followed. She was both campaign manager and chief of staff for John Tester of Montana. Suffice it to say, Stephanie is considered in political circles to be one of the most elite operatives, and best organizational leaders in the country. But her recognition does go beyond political circles. She was recently named one of the 10 Most Powerful Women in Washington by Elle magazine. I am so pleased to have Stephanie on the podcast. We recorded this episode on Friday, December 11th. Stephanie Shriak, welcome to Staffer.
1: Thank you, Jim. I'm thrilled to be here.
0: I am so excited that you're here. Um, I I am going to talk about uh, the big news uh, that just came out yesterday. Um, But before I do, I want, um, if you would, to hear a little bit about how you grew up. I know you were uh, born in Montana and you went to school in Minnesota. But tell us about uh, family life growing up and how you first got interested in politics.
1: Well, I grew up in Butte, Montana, and uh, for those of you who... Probably have never heard of Butte, Montana, though I can't imagine because it is like Butte, America, amazing community. Get a map. It is a, yeah, right. It is a, (laughs) it is a old mining town, it is a union town, it is a, uh, it is a rough, uh, but wonderful place where you were raised to either be with the company. Oh, or with the workers, <laughs> like that was the question of the day. And my, and for our family, you were always with the workers. My dad uh, grew up in Minnesota, the land of the Democratic Labor Farmer Party, the DFL. Mm-hmm. Uh, and my mom uh, grew up in Iowa on a on a farm herself. And and so when they moved out to Montana uh, with this little, you know, one year old. Uh, to start our lives out there, uh, it was just like ingrained in the air in Butte that that's that's the way it was going to be. And and I just, I think early on, though my parents weren't political at all, like at all at all, I loved it really early on. I was like, I want to get involved in everything. I was definitely that kid.
0: Uh-huh. And so did you <laughs> did you get involved in local politics at all or did you did you like consume the news and then sort of get more involved during or after college?
1: Oh, um, no. I I started. First off, I was in Girl Scouts and I like I actually write about this in the, in the book uh, that we have coming out in January Run to Win. Uh where my uh, co-writer Christina Reynolds and I would tell a lot of great stories and one of them is uh my quick learning ability to sell Girl Scout cookies, which I am very good at, by the way. <laughs>
0: <It> <laughs> I, that a does very not good surprise fundraiser. at all.
1: <laughs> <laughs> and so, but, but Girl Scouts, for me, was a really important part of leadership and public service. And so it started there, you know, as a brownie. Uh, for for That's why you're like your little second grader brownie outfit. Uh which I think I still have my sash somewhere in the house. <laughs> and, <laughs> uh, and so it started early on. And then I really enjoyed uh, student government. And I ran for class president all the time. And I kind of, I lost all the time. I wasn't so good at the winning part of the class president, but, uh, But I think they just felt sorry for me, so they'd always like let me on the council as something, (laughs) because I would always work hard. I was always a hard worker. Uh, So I got very involved in student government and and finally figured out um, going into my senior year of high school that I could run for student body president and the whole school would vote and not just my class. So this is is like, this is actually the beginning of the political operative side of Stephanie versus the candidate. Different. Ele- expand the electorate, <laughs> yes. Jim. Expand the electorate. Uh, and that's exactly what happened. I won that race because of the freshmen and sophomores. Very grateful. Uh, and that that was a lot of activity. But I even volunteered for then Congressman Pat Williams, uh, Nancy Keenan at the time. Some, some know as the uh, um, predecessor to Elise Hoag from NARAL pro Trace America. But when I was a kid, uh, she was the superintendent of public instruction in Montana, uh-huh. statewide elected official. And so I was just like, I was doing all that. And my parents were like, well, who is this kid that we're raising? <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, so you went to the University of Mankato. Uh, Mankato, is, am I pronouncing it correctly? Yes,
1: Ma- Mankato State University when I okay. went there, um, though now it's uh, Minnesota State at Mankato. Um, really known for being the big City, city, I used with quotations um, in Little House on the Prairie. If <laughs> anybody <laughs> ever watched Little House on the Prairie, sure did. I'm now aging myself. Great books, by the way. Um, Mankato was where they went to the big store.
0: <laughs> oh, I didn't realize that. <laughs> I didn't realize where the prairie was, all those, all those episodes super I was watching. Super
1: random. Yeah, super random. Uh, that's all Minnesota. And um, Mankato State was also happened to be where my parents went. And I, Uh, followed in their footsteps and jumped right back into student government at Mankato State.
0: So, you know, as you know, this podcast is dedicated to the proposition that being a staffer in politics or government is phenomenal training for life, no matter what you do. Um, You when you came out of college, you immediately jumped into the campaign world. You worked uh, in congressional campaigns. And I'm wondering what from those early years did you, you know, what did you take away that you still draw on today?
1: Oh, I you know one of the things i i I figured out quickly was to say yes as much as possible to opportunities. you know, and that's now, not everybody can do that financially or in fine in family situations, but if you can, you know, jump and go and take the opportunity. Even maybe it doesn't sound as great as you thought it would be. But once you get on a campaign and, you know, we all know this, like all of a sudden sort of all hands on deck and you can learn and pick up all different kinds of skills. You're not sort of put in a box, particularly on smaller campaigns that are scrappy and they don't have as much money and they're just trying to figure it out. And that that to me... Um, was a big deal i i my first my first paid gig on a campaign was with mary reader she was running for congress in uh what was then minnesota's first congressional district that included mankato went all the way over to to rochester and the eastern side of the state uh and she lived in iota the booming community of iota minnesota (laughs) uh right outside of rochester I had convinced her that I should be her scheduler uh, because I thought that being the scheduler meant I would know all the aspects of the campaign, which is actually true because you do get to know all of the people. I have since realized that scheduling is absolutely the hardest, most (laughs) difficult job, period. And I like apologize to Francie Harris every day who does my scheduling. It is a She's a terrible job. An it's absolutely job.
0: I, it's I I uh, I couldn't agree with you more.
1: Terrible. It's terrible. Oh, if you do gosh. it
0: perfectly, if you do it perfectly, nobody notices. Right? right. That's the but problem with scheduling. You iron out all the loose ends, you you, 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 you know, right, you fix everything and everything goes smoothly, so nobody notices. It's only the hiccups that people right. like recognize.
1: Right. Or the boss decides yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the schedule. But <laughs> yeah. but I'm going to go do this other thing, um, yeah. which happened to me all the time, particularly when I worked for uh, Senator John Tester. Like you'd have the perfect schedule, except we sometimes lost the senator. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I had a candidate who, who loved stopping for, pan, uh, for blueberry pancakes at McDonald's, and that was always the curveball. In keeping the schedule on time.
1: I know. And then you think, well, we'll just put that in the schedule. And then the one day you put it in the schedule, no, no blueberry (laughs) pancakes.
0: (laughs) Right. Not feeling it today. (laughs) Um, I I want to ask you about um, uh, and really kind of talk about Emily's List. Um, which the news uh, just broke yesterday. Uh, Today is Friday the 11th, that you have announced that your 11-year tenure uh, is coming to an end this spring in 2021. And before I ask you about what comes next, I would like to just hear you talk about the organization, which for my entire time in politics um, has been a leader and has been a source of... um, leadership and funds and training and people. It is by far the most successful organization of its kind dedicated to electing pro-choice women to office. Um, And during your tenure, there's been unprecedented growth. So I'm going to brag on you for a bit. Um, You have elected and trained thousands of women. More than 1,000 have been elected up and down the ballot. More than 14,000 have been trained to run and, and manage campaigns. You've raised nearly half a billion dollars during that time to support candidates. And you now have a membership of more than five million people. This year marks the first time in our history that we have elected a woman to the White House. Um, And uh, uh, Vice President-elect Harris has actually written the foreword uh, to your book. What does her election mean to you, and what do you think it means about the broader political environment?
1: I going to say, everybody who's listening just miss missed me do a happy dance on Kamala Harris.
0: <laughs> That's <laughs> right. I got time, to see it.
1: I did. He, Jim got to see it. I Every time I hear Vice President-elect Kamala Harris, I can't help it. I literally have a physical reaction. I, I do yes. this little happy dance. Uh, because it's been so hard to get there and and I'm so so pleased that that it's Kamala she's such a wonderful spokeswoman and leader uh, she's smart and strategic and thoughtful and compassionate and I, I just think it's another part of this sea change moment that we're in and so I you know, I, you know, a lot of people asked me after the very painful loss of 2016 uh, when, when the great, great Hillary Clinton uh, did not uh, become the first woman president of the United States, what that meant for women. And, of course, we know now that women have risen up uh, in huge numbers And Emily's list, was in position to expand and take those tens of thousands of women who are interested in running, who have found their voice and power to help them move on. And so folks would often ask, well, what would have happened if she would won? And, and the truth is, I don't know the answer because when you see someone who looks like you in a role that they've that you've never seen that before, a woman president, a woman vice president, a woman of color vice president, you inspire generations of other women and women of color to step up. And I believe that's exactly what we're going to see. I think that's what we were going to see no matter what with Hillary Clinton. It just happened in a different way. I thought it would be her driving it. And instead it was the the uh, the loss of that race. And I think we're going to see we're already seeing women of color in the last couple of years uh, come up even in a bigger number. And I think this will just expand that. And it's huge because that's what our government should look like. It should look like our country.
0: Absolutely. And and, you know, the, the Emily's List theory isn't just electing women to the top positions. It is electing women everywhere at, you know, all up and down the ballot, everywhere we should have leaders that look like America and Kamala Harris is now going to be our vice president. But she was a United States senator. And before that, she was attorney general. And it is thanks to Emily's list, which is electing women, you know, at every stage that we have a bigger and bigger pool to draw upon.
1: Right, and let us not forget that she was DA in San That's Francisco, right. District Attorney. That's right. right. I mean, this is this is really about uh, about starting local, though they not not everybody does. Uh, you can kind of pick your own journey and figure out what's best for you, and it depends on where you live and and what opportunities arise for you. Uh, but we, you know, one of the things we talk about uh, at Emily's List a lot, and and we talk about in the book is that for Emily's List, like we're in this for the long haul. We're not here for one election. We are with these women for their entire career, sometimes whether they want it or not. I mean, (laughs) I often, as I call through, uh, particularly after women uh, lose races, I'm like, that's just a step in the process, sister. Like, it's okay. We're just gonna figure out what's next. And I remember Uh, having a conversation with Maggie Hassan, who now today is a United States Senator from New Hampshire, a former governor, uh, sort of followed in Jean Shaheen's footsteps as a woman governor and then a a woman senator. Go New Hampshire, thank you. Uh, But people forget that Maggie Hassan, someone that we trained to run for state Senate in New Hampshire, she won served one term and then she lost Mm. and she was at a kind of a loss of what to do next and and we emily's list called and had a long conversation and said i know this might sound crazy but we think you should run for governor now like this is a moment and and she agreed to do it and guess what she became governor and and that's been the trajectory we think (laughs) You know, we often think, like, what's next for, for her, whoever she is, what's next?
0: You know, that's a quality that is sort of rare in politics, which is a, a very like who's up, who's down business sometimes. And when people stumble, there aren't always organizations that call them a week later and say, I believe in you. You know, the day later or, or a week later, I believe in you. What are you doing? You know, let, we got to figure out what's next. But that is the ethic of Emily's list. Yeah. Um,
1: well, and it should be. This is what, because otherwise we yeah. lose talent yes, so quickly. Right. That's right. Uh, and we have to keep we've got to keep supporting folks who are willing to put their name on the ballot. And we have to keep supporting the staff who are willing to move across the country. Uh, to work with these candidates. And we have to find ways to keep those staff engaged in between the times of uh, which there are no jobs or it's, and now when Jim, you and I were younger, those time periods were longer and <laughs> there were right. more ramen noodles in my life at the <laughs> early stages of my career. But uh, but it's still something like keeping talent uh, in the entire system is so critical, and it's both in candidates and in staff.
0: Well, and I want to ask you about uh, the staff. Um, the people who work at Emily's List, in my experience, in my experience, um, are warriors. They are some of the Democratic Party's most capable, smartest, hardest working, most experienced campaign operatives. Uh I mean, you having received training from Emily's List are evidence of the benefits that come. I mean, you eventually were finance director on Howard Dean's presidential campaign, which was groundbreaking um, in its record setting uh, uh, fundraising, particularly off the Internet, which was sort of the dawn of the Internet age uh, in the political world. Um You managed campaigns for Senator Tester, for Senator Franken. You were Senator Senator Tester's chief of staff. Um, What do you look for? um, Or or, uh, let me put it another way. When you um, have staff and are surrounded by staff, as you do have at Emily's List today, what makes a good staffer, in your opinion?
1: Yeah, what I look for is um, I look for someone who is committed to the mission Whatever the mission may be, you know the mission may be at Emily's List to elect women to office uh, or elect Democratic women to office, or you know, and you might be driven by a different piece of it. But in, in general, we're looking for the, at a basic—you've got to want to make change, you know. And there's so many people across this country who are who are dying to make change. So I'm looking for that, uh, and then I'm looking for someone who's. Uh, you know, who's willing to learn uh, along the way. And and I find, you know, particularly uh, at Emily's list, but I've also saw that in, in Senator Tester's office and, and the campaigns I've been on, you know, folks who are willing to ask some questions and, and kind of recognize that uh, every opportunity is an opportunity to learn something new. I think that is really, uh, really, really important. Uh, But one of the things I also do as a manager of staff is that managers have got to let staff run. Uh, I really firmly believe that uh, it is more important uh, to give space to run, to learn, to make mistakes, uh, and to be there to to pick the staffer up when she trips because all of us trip. You know, and I'm like, wipe the dirt off your knee and talk about what happened, what we learned, and now go, keep running because the worst to me, I've always believed that the worst thing you can do is nothing, is standing still, and that's when you lose races, that's when you don't move policy forward, that's when everything just stops, and I want folks that are going to run, and run hard, and. and I know it's hard to say, you know, take risks because risks are really scary. Uh, and I hope I can encourage, you know, particularly women to take more risks because I think it's I think it's worth it. Doesn't always work, but I think it's worth it.
0: One of the things I love to ask people is, um, you know, w- can you tell me a time when you royally screwed up? Uh, you know, tell me the story and what you learned from it.
1: Oh, Jim! I don't, like <laughs> which one? <laughs> I know. That's that I know.
0: That's that's my answer too. I have too big of a basket oh, to select God, from.
1: Oh God, the list! The list is long. List. Well, this will be. This one's sort of funny because um, uh, the vice president of communications at Emily's List, Christina Reynolds, and my, the co-author of of the book we're releasing in January has has had to deal with with the ramifications of of this. That happened a long time ago. So I was um, the first race I managed was a congressional race in Minnesota for then Congressman Bill Luther in what was then Minnesota's sixth congressional district. Uh, he was a prolific fundraiser, really good guy. Uh, his his wife his now we lost her late um, wife, but she was she was a state senator, so it was a good political power couple uh, in Minnesota and he hired me to be the campaign manager. I'd never done that before. I'd, I'd met him the cycle before when I was Mary Reader's finance director. Uh, and and he trusted me enough to be the manager. And again, I said yes. I was just back to say yes to the opportunity. And did I know how to do all the things? No, but I'm going to figure it out and I'm going to take this opportunity. So we didn't think we had much of a race. So it was supposed, it was supposed to be a easy uh, incumbent re-election that I just had to keep a steady hand on this ship and it was going to be fine. Uh, and uh, two mistakes, many more mistakes happened on this race, but two that stick out vividly. Um, one was the first and Last time for years, I did a press interview. <laughs> and I and because I was a finance director. And you know sure. what they tell finance directors and finance people? Never the, the comms people always say, never talk to the press. And I took that to heart. I when I was told by all the comms people I'd worked with, don't talk to the press, I took it to heart. Mm-hmm. So here I am, campaign manager, I have to talk to the press. And they were wondering why Bill Luther was, uh, you know, sort of amassing all of these resources, but we weren't really spending them in the campaign. So what was the deal? And, you know, the right answer would be, you know, he's working really hard for the district and this race is, you know, we're taking this race very seriously and we're campaigning every day and we're doing exactly what we need to do for this race. I instead um, said something more to the effect of, yeah, well, we might be looking at future opportunities like running for Senate. Like the uh, totally yes, the wrong, right. terrible yes. thing to say. Oh, Huge mistake. Oh. And I paid for it. <laughs> this congressman was livid. The chief of staff almost fired me and maybe should have. I was like, oh. And as soon as it came out of my mouth, I knew it was wrong. Yep. I just... I just didn't, I didn't practice. I didn't Mm -hmm. think it, you know, I didn't have anybody there to kind of talk it through. And and it honestly, and this is sort of sad, it freaked me out so much that I did not talk to the press again for a very long time and was like really would have to force me to do it. Uh, I was terrified. And it was one of the, I mean, every time I became a campaign manager, you know, most campaign managers, if they don't have a finance director, hire a finance director first. Well, I could do the beginnings of the fundraising. I hired a comms director, so I didn't have to talk to the press.
0: (laughs) (laughs) How would you get over it? You know, I mean, how did you? (laughs)
1: ah. (laughs) Yes. So I, you know, I had to do a little bit more press during a little. Uh, during the Al Franken race because uh, the folks remember that race it, it got complicated by the fact that it was uh, a tie and a recount and and everything that was going on and so I needed to do a little bit more press work and our um, our communications director at the time uh, a great, great guy that a lot of people know Eric Schultz sort of helped me through that uh, which was hard but I still didn't like it and And so I went back to Senator Chester's office as chief of staff, where I thankfully did not have to talk to the press anymore. But then when the question about uh, Emily's list came to me and if I was going to consider doing it, uh, and like I said, I talk about this a little bit in the book, it was my biggest fear and and this is something that so many people particularly women do is like i don't have 100 of what's on this job description so therefore i'm not gonna i mean someone who, who had said yes to being a campaign manager even though i didn't know what i was doing and being a finance director and didn't know what i was doing all of a sudden in the in the mid of my career was afraid to try to be the president of emily's list at the time 11 years ago now because I was afraid of being the lead spokesperson. My God. And yeah. So but I, I got over it by hiring consultants to help me get over it and learn how to do it.
0: Yeah. I want to ask you about the book. But before I do, looking back on your 11 years at Emily's List and seeing how the organization has grown and succeeded, what comes next, both for Emily's List and for you?
1: So, well, we will we will see what happens with Emily's List. Uh, she is on such a great trajectory right now, uh, very strong. We have almost 120 staff uh, at our lowest point at the beginning of my tenure. We dropped her down to 40. So you, the growth has been massive. The staff is incredible. Uh, and we are leading a sea change moment here that that is gonna completely change, I believe, every level of government in every state in this country because women are now running and they're running at numbers we've never seen before. And it's not just one year, it's, it's the next decades. It is the rest of our lives. And Emily's List will be there uh, to continue this work, to get more and more women uh, up and ready to run. Uh, the the first obstacle for uh, 30 years of Emily's List was just to get women to say yes <laughs> to running. <laughs> like that was right. actually the big obstacle. Well, we have over 60,000 women who have come to us saying, I'm interested in running. I may not know for what, yeah. I may not know what I'm doing, I may not have any clue what I'm getting myself into, but I gotta do something. And so now that we've crossed over that next obst- you know, the, for that first obstacle, the rest we can figure out. I, that's what we said, like, we can give you the tools. We can teach you all the things. That's not the problem. You wanna make change. That was the first and most important thing. And so Emily's List will be and is today and will continue to be at the forefront Of this paradigm shift in our government, Uh, and I'm really looking forward to it because we're going to be a, we'll be a better country when we have an equal number of women and men at the decision-making table. Or maybe to make up for lost time, we could have. 60 70 80% of the table. But you know, like let's get to 50 first. <laughs>
0: that's right. That's uh, one of my favorite quotes from Ruth Bader Ginsburg is when when asked, you know, oh. when what is the right number of uh, of Supreme Court justices who should be women? And she said nine. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I, yeah. We that's obviously right. like we, why not? Of course, right? Like, no come one on. no one was asking come that on. question. When I was nine men That's yeah. right.
1: Exactly right. right. Exactly right. Um, So she's ready to go and and not to dodge your second question, which is, you know, honestly, I I really believe that there is a significant challenge going on in this country right now. The division is massive. And though I don't I really am honest in saying I am not sure what is next for me, uh, but I am looking at the state of the divide uh, particularly growing up in Montana, having a lot of family in the Midwest, uh, and then also uh, seeing the changes in people's hearts about, about Black Lives Matter and what it, the systemic racism uh, that we are living and, and how damaging it is to everybody, particularly our, our Black community. But it's, it's destroying our nation. I want to take some time and think through where where I need to be in this next this next battle in the war that we're in, because this is this is real. And mm-hmm. I think we have a lot, a lot of work to do.
0: Boy, we could spend a whole podcast on that, um, because I certainly agree with you. And I'm really uh, eager to find out what comes next. Uh, and I didn't expect you to really have an answer today, but I'll be, you know, uh Awaiting anxiously to see uh, what that is. But I do want to talk to you about the book. Uh, it's called Run to Win Lessons in Leadership for Women Changing the World. It is available today for those who want to order it and whose uh, holiday shopping isn't quite complete. The list of people who have written blurbs, uh, really incredible. I mean, Hillary Clinton, Stacey Abrams, uh, New Mexico Governor Michelle Lujan Grisham, and I mentioned uh, Vice President-elect Harris's foreword for the book. Uh, Why did you write write the book and who's it for?
1: Well, Christina and I and a a number of us uh, at Emily's List during the 2018, 17 and 18 cycle were just watching... Uh, these extraordinary women who were running for the first time, uh, particularly for Congress, but all across the country, and, and thinking about how our role at EMILY's List to help them build their campaigns, find their stories, tell their stories, build their networks, Uh, learn how to fundraise for the first time, uh, deal with a media crisis for the first time, like all the things that happen in a campaign that you never even think of when you've never done it before, We, we realized something really special was going on and that the lessons of this moment, something that we've sort of taken for granted because we've been doing it for so long, were lessons that should be shared and stories that should be shared to inspire uh, many more generations of women who want to make change and not just run for office, but to become staffers, to become activists, to engage in their communities, uh, to make the change that needs to happen. Uh, And there's, you know, there, there are lessons in the book you know about i was i was making the joke about my girl scout cookie uh, selling days uh but but the truth is we all have to ask for things all the time and there's plenty of academic research that shows that women don't ask for enough in their salary negotiations or don't ask for that promotion because they don't think they have 100 percent of the job skills and we really go right at that, and and say, no, you've got to, you know, put yourself out there. You have a story to tell. You have a perspective that's important, and we need we need you uh, in every aspect of society to step up and and share that because that is how we're going to get to this next mm. new better place in this country. And so it was time to put this all together and. And there are some really amazing candidate stories along the way that still inspire me uh, every day, particularly when I see, you know, I see these women continue their leadership and their growth. And it's just it's really fabulous.
0: You know, there are there are times I get depressed about the state of the world, you know, depending on how much sleep I've gotten, what news stories, uh, you know, are in my feed that day. And there are times I'm very optimistic about the future and young people and how much progress we've made during our time in politics. 2020 has obviously been a hard year for the whole country. And in Democratic circles, it's been a hard four years. Yeah, You know, the, the 18 cycle was particularly exciting for a lot of reasons. But, you know, this administration and the Trump presidency has been a hard uh, period of time. Um When it comes to electing more pro-choice Democratic women, give me a reason uh, to be optimistic about the future and also give me something that just, you know, is hard, hard talk. Right. That like it's still some still a problem. And, you know, we need to get uh, back to the grindstone on.
1: I mean, it's, you know, it's really, it's about representation and it is about diversity of voices and ensuring that the policies that we're putting together to move this country forward represent every aspect of our society. And unfortunately, under these last four years, it's been one, literally one person's perspective. I mean, not even like it's Trump's perspective. That's right. Think That's about right. that. It's not even different people in the Republican Party. It's heartbreaking. And his perspective is authoritarian. His perspective is totalitarian. It is very dangerous. And that is what's been so, just so hard. Uh, and we, we know those of us who read history and, and watch uh, things that go on around the world, I'm going to be very blunt here, uh, dictators uh and despots tend to uh always make a group of people the other so that's always a dangerous part of this and that's exactly what he has done um people have died because of his actions uh children will maybe i mean god help us they never see their parents again because of his actions i mean the list goes on and on we are uh, sending people back into countries that are are likely going to imprison them or worse when they get there. I mean, this is a terrible moment uh, for the United States and uh, one that we will have to reckon with for a very, very, very long time. Uh, But the other thing that happens in moments like this uh, is that they they often use gender to also divide. And and to feminize the opponents because uh, because it's a strong man uh, dictatorship, which mm-hmm. is what he has, what he does, uh, and it's very very damaging uh, to uh, the place of women in society. So that's sort of the darkness of this moment, and it is it is scary, and it's something that we have to be very, very aware, which is why organizations like EMILY's List have to double and triple down right now to get women in leadership roles to counteract that, that momentum uh, because, This is what he's trying to do. And the more people buy into that philosophy, the danger for women in this country of all backgrounds, of all classes across the board uh, is terrifying. But they realize that. And, they're, and women are finding their voice and their power. And like I said, 60,000 plus women have come to Emily's List saying, I know there's a problem. I got to do something. It's not slowing down. It was not one election cycle. It was not just 2018. Um, and we won a lot of races and we lost a lot of races in 2020. But we're going to keep on at it. And women are stepping up to do this. And they have to, because I th- believe that women are also the key to healing this country. And it's going to take a long time.
0: Yeah. Okay, I've got two final questions for you. One is in that, you know, that dark and pessimistic world right now that Trump has led and fomented, there have also been members of the Republican Party who have broken and stepped away. Not enough. We need many more. But we all have Republican friends and colleagues and family members. And even though we are professional Democrats, right, that we we work uh, in fields to elect Democrats to higher office. um, We also have worked with Republicans or admired them from across, you know, uh, the battlefield of politics. I'm wondering if you can um, name somebody who you know, across the aisle, you look at and you respect uh, based on, you know, past work uh, with them or even against them?
1: Um, Well, I was going to think of elected Republicans who's no longer uh, in office. I always think of Nancy Casabon being such an extraordinary leader and role model. Um, I wish more Republican women were coming up in in her model uh, versus what we're seeing today. Uh, but I've thought about this uh, a bit, and and I do work uh, with a, a number of Republicans, and some might find that really uh, surprising because I mean, run against them, uh, you know, Stephen Law, who's over um, at American Crossroads, who we would consider like the evil organization that it, it is. Uh, I will say we have actually, even though we've we've had many battles against each other politically, uh, have become. Uh, friends through all of this craziness uh, because he, you know, deep down believes in democracy and I'm going to respect any Republican who's willing to, to believe in democracy right now. uh, And I, I really appreciate that. I always felt as, as a campaign manager and when I was chief, that those roles in particular were the roles that had to have a line to the opposition. And what I mean by that is that the candidates are constantly battling each other. You know, they're on the debate stage, they're like they're not chit-chatting. It's like it's intense. Mm-hmm. And the field staff are like out there outmaneuvering, and the comm staff are like trying to outmaneuver, and you're everybody else is against, but the, the campaign manager and the chief. That particular role I have felt needs to have a line into the opposing campaign or office just in case something happens. And and I, I don't know if actually even know if someone gave me that advice. I wish I could I, I just knew I don't know if it was instinct, but I I remember when I was managing John Tester's race in Montana uh, I made sure to introduce myself, uh, to Conrad, it was then a Senator Conrad Burns campaign manager, uh, who I, who I had not known, uh, and, and just said, you know, here's the thing. I know we're gonna have a very messy race here and a lot of money's gonna come in, but if you feel like, We've ever overstepped the bounds of of decency or ever put anybody in harm's way because you know things can get messy. I just want you to have myself, and I want you to know you can call me, and I hope I can do the same. And and I did that with him. I did that with with Norm Coleman's uh, campaign manager, uh, and 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 in fact with Norm Coleman's campaign manager, Colin Sheehan we um we ended up using that line a couple times uh one uh when trackers were getting too close to the candidates and actually we had an incident where uh and nobody I, I i i like to choose to think that there was it wasn't meant to be harmful uh but a young man was tracking uh then al you know candidate franken and and al had turned right smack into the camera and cut his eye with his, with his glasses. And, and I called up and I said, I think we have a pro we, we need a, maybe a four or six foot, like, let's like we can, now in the pandemic, I'm like, we need a, <laughs> we need a space. <laughs> little, and, and you know what? To his credit, he agreed and yeah. we instituted it and we didn't have another problem. Right. You know, and and then when we got in the recount, and then all of a sudden we were the two people in the world who had to figure out how to pay for a recount and had to pay for this trial. And we would sit in the back of the <laughs> of the courtroom going, well, how how are you paying for this? And, like, <laughs> is the committee moving you money? Oh, they are moving you money. Do you think if we went to the FEC, we could change some rules about how we could get literally we went to the FEC.
0: Wow. And change
1: the rules so wow. we could raise more money because the the costs were so high. So I I just have like I just think they're the two people at, that can have a conversation. You can you're still going to have a lot of fighting. you all those things, but I think having one line in is really important.
0: I agree with you, and I hope. Uh, listeners um, do it if they're in the in that position, that similar position, chief of staff, campaign manager, to make that outreach. Because in addition to it establishing a good human connection and an escape hatch should something go wrong, it's also a reminder like, hey, we're grownups. This is a you know, and this and this endeavor that we're all engaged in has boundaries and we are going to uh, police those boundaries for the good of the democracy. Um, last question for you because we're coming up on time. If I were to raise funds to build a Hall of Fame to staffers at any level in politics or government and put it on the National Mall, who would you nominate for the Staffer Hall of Fame and why?
1: Oh my gosh, the list is so long. Are you kidding me? I know. I I I've been in Emily's list for 11 years. That list alone (laughs) is so long. Um, well, let us not forget about your former boss, Rosa DeLora, yes. who who was Emily's List's first executive director. Yep. She did pretty well, not just as a staffer, but also moving on up. Yes, uh, which I remember, and, like and newest really cool uh, chair of
0: appropriations.
1: I'm so thrilled. I just in. congratulated her. So, yes. so, so happy. You know, Ellen Malcolm, who founded Emily's List, you know, and I really, I hold her in such esteem. You know, she was a staffer. She was a comms person for Common Cause and, you know, worked alongside in the National Women's Political Caucus. She was just one of, you know, one of us, like, coming up the ranks, trying to figure out what to do when she came up with this crazy idea about asking her friends for resources to back up women running for office. (laughs) So she, like, Grabbed all her girlfriends and they sat in her house and said, what should we do? Let's start Emily's list. This is crazy. It might not work. Uh, And there you go. Um, So from staffer to entrepreneur uh, and founder to icon. There you go. Ellen Malcolm.
0: Absolutely. Um, First ballot selection, without a doubt. Ellen Malcolm in the Stafford Hall of Fame, no question. Stephanie Sriyak, I cannot thank you enough for making time uh, today and sharing, you know, all of your insights um, and your stories. uh, But most importantly, for what you've done with your career, the public service, the commitment to change and your leadership at Emily's List. It has um, been a gift to the country uh, and to our party and to all the um, women staffers and candidates that you've helped along the way. So thank you.
1: Oh, Jim, thank you so much. Honestly, I've been the one that's been blessed. I get to work with some of the best, best people uh, in American politics every day. And that's fulfilled me every day.
0: Yep. Thank you again. I look forward to talking soon. Well, friends, the clocks just buzzed four times and the Marine Sentry has left the West Wing, which means this episode of Staffer is officially adjourned. I want to thank you all for listening to the only show created for and about the people who work in government and politics at any level. I do have a quick favor to ask. Please follow, subscribe, and like the show on all of your favorite podcast platforms. Positive reviews are everything in this business, I'm told. And make sure to sign up for episode alerts at Staffershow.com and check out Staffershow on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn. Thanks all.